Today, as we rejoice in God's provision of ministers among us, we're going to be looking in 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 2, where Paul speaks of ministry and what it means to be a faithful minister of Christ for him an apostle uh, and for us receiving new elders and deacons today. So we're going to be reading in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 12. We'll continue on to chapter 3, verse 6. You can find that on page 965 of our ESVs, if you picked one up on the way in. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and reading through chapter 3, verse 6. Before we read God's word together, please join me again in a word of prayer to ask his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, we come to you as always, needy and empty, needing to be filled by you, by your word and spirit, to be of any use, uh, to be of any pleasure to you, our Father. We come bringing uh, nothing for our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary, and yet you, by your good pleasure, fill and gift and provide for us, and you save us by the mercy of Jesus Christ, that we should see the glory of the gospel and the truth that you have given of all your promises of good for your people. And so help us to see something of that. Help us to rejoice in who you are today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word as we find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That sends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add its blessing to its reading and its hearing. You know, any time uh, you make an investment in the future, it's a good idea to know what you're getting into. 
You wouldn't buy Bitcoin without knowing the exchange rate. Uh, you wouldn't buy a house without an inspection, and you certainly wouldn't go into business with someone that you hardly knew. The same principle holds true for spiritual matters. The Lord called his followers, his friends, in the early days of his ministry to count the cost of following him, to know clearly what it is they would be called to give up, to be his disciples, and also to know what they might gain by being his disciples. The Lord wants his people to know what they're getting into, and the same is true as well of service in the church. Today we are marking and making a significant investment in the future ministry of our congregation. Four men, uh, in just a little while, will be set apart for ministry. They have been called by the Lord through the voice of this congregation, called to be under-shepherds of Jesus to be ministers of God's mercy. And it is a joyous and exciting occasion. But to our excitement and to our joy, we need to add a bit of sober thinking. We all need to know what we're getting into today. The four men that will be before you and who will be ordained need to know what they're getting into. They need to know the standard by which they will be judged. They need to know the goal for which they'll be striving. They need to know what will be expected of them. And at the end of a day, when they have had a meeting and they've had to make a particularly difficult decision, they need to be able to lay their head on the pillow at night and know whether or not they have been faithful to these callings, and they need to know what they're getting themselves into. Well, so do you, folks. You, the congregation, you need to know what to expect of the men who will stand before you in just a little bit. You need to know what you can expect to receive from them and what you should not expect to receive from them. You need to know the itches that they are not being called upon to scratch in the congregation. And you need to know how to pray for them. We all need to have a clear vision for what faithful ministry in the church is supposed to look like. And that's what we find in 2 Corinthians chapters 2 and 3. Paul's summary of his own apostolic ministry. Now, there are differences, obviously, between apostles and elders and deacons. But even though there are differences, and even though we are not ordaining any apostles today, there is just one pattern for faithful gospel ministry in whatever form it shows up. Paul's goal and his aim was to point beyond himself to help the churches to see and to grow in who Jesus is. And that is what these men will be called upon to do among us. They'll be called to fulfill a faithful ministry. And so let's ask the question together today, what are we getting ourselves into? What does faithful ministry in the church look like? I want to suggest that there are four things. They'll be quick. It's okay. Four things that we find in this passage that shows us what faithful ministry ought to look like. First, faithful ministry in the church looks like representation. That's the goal of ministry. Whether it's apostolic, whether it's uh, elder ministry, whether it's diaconal ministry, whether it's the ministry that you have with one another in all the many areas that you have influence in the different circles in which you run. The goal of faithful ministry is to represent Jesus Christ, to be faithful ambassadors of him, to live and to work in such a way that others would see something of who Jesus is, something of the beauty of the gospel, or we could use 
Paul's language and say the goal is to be so saturated with Jesus' influence that we even begin to smell like the Savior. This is the metaphor that Paul uses, verses 14 and 15. God in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and who are perishing. You notice those two words there, and they are intentionally translated. They are different words in the Greek, and they show up in our ESV either as fragrance or as aroma. This is an indication that, as Paul often does, he is mixing his metaphors, and he's doing it because he sees ministers as representatives of Christ on at least two different levels. For one, he speaks of the fragrance. And he lets us know that ministers, faithful ministers, are to represent Jesus' victory to the world. This is what we find in verse 14. It's the picture of the triumphal procession. This is something that was well known in the Roman world because any time a conquering Roman general would come back to the imperial city, they would have a parade. They would come back having sacked some other place and conquered some other people, and they would come back to fanfare, and the conquering general would be at the head, paraded through the streets with his officers behind him and his soldiers behind them, carrying the spoils of war and goods and all sorts of things that they've brought from these foreign lands that they have subdued. But then, after all of the soldiers came the slaves, And they were shackled and bound. They were the enemies of Rome. And they were being led to a public execution. And almost in an ironic twist, what they would do very often is they would make these condemned slaves to carry burning bowls of incense as though they were celebrating the fact that they had been vanquished by Rome, who was going to inherit all the world, don't you know? And here they were carrying the fragrance of their conquering through the city streets, and the whole city was filled with the smell of victory for Rome. And that's what Paul says the Lord is doing with his people. It's the same image that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You may remember, oh, maybe a year and a half ago now. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, God has exhibited us, has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. In this ticker tape parade, that's where Paul says he is. He's at the back. He's a spectacle. He is a man who has been subdued to the Lord, a slave to Christ, and everywhere he goes, everything he does, every word he preaches is meant to show forth Jesus' victory in the world. He used to be an enemy of God. And he has been vanquished, and he has been subdued. He does not live for himself. He doesn't seek to please himself. His goal is to represent Christ, and before men, to represent the victory of the kingdom of God. But secondly, Paul says that there is an aroma. And this is a different metaphor. He's talking about ministers who represent the aroma of Jesus' sacrifice to the Father. This is a very specific word in the Old Testament. It's normally tied to the sacrificial altar where the scent of the sacrifice would rise as a pleasing aroma to the Lord and he would smell and be pleased with the sacrifices of his people. It's the same picture. 
that faithful ministers become a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's not because ministers in themselves smell particularly good. It's more like uh, heel-grabbing Jacob, who clad himself in the garments of his older brother and went to his father whose eyes were failing, and finally when he came near, his father said, Oh, the smell of my son is the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed, whatever that means. That's what faithful ministers are to the Lord. You don't become pleasing, you don't smell good in his sight because you are pleasing and because of your own sacrifice. Your ministry doesn't become pleasing to the Lord because of all the late hours that you spend in committee meetings and giving yourself to serve the people and to lead the church, not because of your compassion for those who are in need or getting that budget just right, although we so appreciate a budget that is just right. Faithful ministers become pleasing to the Lord because their sacrifices grow out of the soil of Jesus' sacrifice for them. They give themselves because Christ has given himself for them. They love others because Christ has first loved them. It's the ripple effect that pleases the Lord. The salvation of his son that covers in garments of righteousness those who have no righteousness of their own. And the Lord smells the service of his faithful ministers and he says, this is a pleasing aroma. It smells like my son. It smells like his sacrifice. That is what they do. That's what faithful ministry is. It represents Jesus' victory to the world and Jesus' sacrifice to the Father. So brothers, what do you need to faithfully represent Jesus before God and man? You need to be conquered by him first and foremost. You need to have your priorities in the church as you lead us and as you help us, and as you serve us, and as you walk alongside us, you need to have your priorities in the church calibrated by the gospel message that Jesus Christ has sacrificed himself for the people you minister to. You need to submit yourself to his wisdom, to minister in a way that would reveal something of him to us. You are to give mercy as the Lord would give mercy, to guard purity as the Lord would guard purity, to promote holiness as the Lord would promote holiness. Paul says you also need sincerity, down in verse 17. You need that constant conviction that when you speak and when you lead, God is listening and we are watching. You're not watching to see if you are brilliant or even competent or successful in whatever that means. We are watching to see something of the Savior in your service and in your ministry and in your mercy to us. So in everything you do, turn our eyes to Jesus and be the fragrance of Christ among his people and to the Father. That's the first aspect of faithful ministry. It's representation of Jesus. The second one is actually quite a lot like it. It is affection. We see this in chapter 3, verse 2. You are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul here is turning to the question of how traveling ministers in the ancient world could be known to be the real thing. How can we know that this guy who's shown up and we don't know who he is and where he's from, how can we be sure he's not a counterfeit? And he says, well, sometimes... 
the sending church will send a letter. They'll vouch for you. They'll write a recommendation. And Paul himself has written several letters like that. He told the Corinthians to receive Timothy as a faithful brother. He sent Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter of recommendation that he was also a servant and a faithful brother in the Lord. And now Paul brings up the question of his own credentials for ministry. And I want you to notice that Paul does not do something here. He does not do what Paul could have done. And he does not do what he has done in some other occasions, and that is to pull the apostle card. He does not flex the muscles of his status. He doesn't say, you know, I have seen the Lord, and so I don't need your recommendation. Thank you very much. He says, this is how you know that my ministry is legitimate. It's by my compassion, my affection for you. You are written on my heart. He says, you're constantly on my mind. You are constantly in my prayers, and things are not well with me if they are not well with you. Paul has a genuine affection for this church and for these people, and that marks out his ministry as genuine. I think it's also the secret, one of the secrets to Paul's long-suffering in ministry. Think about places where ministry was hard for Paul. Corinth was one of them. Galatia was another, places where Paul received pushback even from professing believers. They weren't sure of, of who he was and what he was doing, if he was carrying the right gospel, and they even uh, would rise up and say things about him, sometimes to his face and sometimes behind his back. But it was affection for God's people that allowed Paul to press on, to seek their good and not his own comfort. It was love and affection for the people, the church, that allowed him to make difficult decisions. Take a look back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He's speaking about a letter, a painful letter that he wrote to them. And he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. What sustained Paul in ministry when ministry was difficult? It was affection. Love for the church. It also worked in the other direction, I think. Because Paul so genuinely loved the people he ministered to that he was overjoyed when they experienced joy in the Lord. When they were growing in Christ, he was happy. He rejoiced to see what God was doing among them. Yes, he felt this deep and abiding sense of a responsibility to God and to his calling, but that was not his only motivation. He didn't wake up every morning and put his apostolic pants on and say, today I'm going to go out and, and, and grind through and I'm going to just do what I've got to do because I've got to be faithful. He came and he said, I love this church and I love this people. In fact, he says, this is something that is seen everywhere he goes, to be known and read by all. Everything that Paul did, everywhere he went, people saw two things about him. They saw, for one, that he was a man who represented Jesus, and for two, they saw a man who loved the people he labored for, and he conducted himself away in a way that nobody could legitimately question those things. So the men who will be ordained, labor among us so that no one can question your affection for the church. Put love for God's people on full display when you pray for us and when you shepherd us. 
Minister to us in mercy and abundance. Listen to the needs of the people and make their burdens your burdens. Please do not confuse gospel affection for the permissiveness that passes for love in our current age. Love the sheep enough to pursue the ones who are straying and to rebuke us when we need it. Befriend the lonely with tenderness. Be patient with us and bear with us and pray for us. That's what ministry looks like. Third is fruitfulness. We find this in verse 3. Faithful ministry looks like laboring for the right fruit, fruitfulness. And Paul moves in verse 3 from what's written on his heart to what is written on the hearts of all God's true people. Let's look at it. You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. And he's showing us the only fruit that's really worth laboring for in the church. There are lots of things that need to be done in the church. Oh, we can keep you men busy. Oh, we've got lots for you to do. There are, uh, there are moving parts and trips and studies and programs and capital campaigns, and there are opportunities to get out into the community and make a name for Redeemer Presbyterian Church. We might be able to grow our congregation. We might be able to keep all of our people just as busy as we're keeping you with studies and seminars and teachings and all sorts of programs. And on top of all of those things, when they're accomplished, there will be that certain satisfaction that you've done a good job. Maybe somebody will pat you on the back. Who knows? But the only thing that makes any of it worthwhile is if the Lord is pleased to use our labors together to write his name on the hearts of his people. To call out his elect from the world and to establish their hearts firmly in Jesus Christ. This is the fruit we ought to labor for in the church. It is the inward experiential knowledge of God alone as Lord and Savior and provider in Jesus Christ. It is what our Westminster Confession calls the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. It's the fruit of the new covenant that Jeremiah wrote of way back in the time of the prophets when he spoke of the Lord who reaches in and takes away hearts that are hard as stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh to know the Lord and to love the Lord and to respond to the Lord. This is the fruit we ought to labor for in the church, the new birth of the Spirit that gives to sinners faith to believe God's promises from the heart. And you all need to know that that this is more than just conversion language here. There is, uh, in our ministry together, all of us, not just these four men, but in our ministry together as we gather week by week, as you gather in your homes, as you pray for one another, there is the regular, continuous, progressive work of the Spirit to break up the fallow ground in our hearts, to soften His people, to grow His fruit in our lives more and more. There is a progressive aspect to this fruit that we're talking about. This is more than just conversion language, but it is not less than conversion language. I want you to know that my prayer for these men today is that they are going to be leaders who are going to help us as a whole congregation, not just for themselves, 
There's a whole congregation to increase our faithfulness to proclaim the gospel in word and deed, both in the church and out of the church. My prayer is that they will help us to more faithfully help you shepherd your children who have not yet professed faith in Jesus Christ. That they will help us to respond to the objections of unbelievers all around us. That they will help us to make Jesus Christ more attractive to those still in the world the Lord is calling to himself. This is what you ought to expect from your elders and your deacons. This is what faithful ministry looks like. It's a willingness to labor for the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of God's people. And lastly, I told you they were going to be quick. Lastly, faithful ministry looks like dependence. My brothers, if you are tracking with this passage so far, if you are getting a clearer and a clearer vision of what faithful ministry ought to be, then you will ask that question of chapter 2, verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? It's almost a silly question. It's one of these, it's one of these rhetorical questions that as soon as you ask it, you already know the answer. Who is sufficient to so faithfully represent Jesus Christ the Lord so that simultaneously, one and the same time, you smell like gospel life to some people and the offense of death to many more? Who's sufficient to do that, to represent Jesus in that way? Who is sufficient to love God's people from the heart? A genuine love, not just outward controlling of your emotions and making sure that your face doesn't make that weird thing when the person comes to you with that request that you've heard already and you've already answered. How do you love God's people from the heart that allows you to continue in ministry even when ministry is difficult? Who is sufficient for such things? Who is sufficient to bring about the new birth of the Spirit in the lives of blinded sinners who are heading to damnation, who is sufficient for these things? Nobody. Nobody. No one in their own strength. And yet Paul says somehow in verse 4 that he's confident. Such is the confidence we have that there is a sufficiency, but it doesn't come from you and it doesn't come from your labors and it doesn't come through your strength and your ministry. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. God promises to work and those who he calls to service. And you need to know that dependence upon him is a prerequisite for the job you're about to take up. Gospel ministry, whether it is for elders or for deacons, for that matter, for the rest of the congregation, gospel ministry is something that is custom designed to be too big for you to handle on your own. To make you see your insufficiency. It is meant to leave you limping like Jacob after he met with the Lord at Peniel. It is meant to make you continually cry out with that prayer of Solomon 
when he took over the kingdom for his, his father who was so great and he called out to the Lord and he said, I'm but a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. That's what ministry is supposed to make you do. It's supposed to make you aware of your inadequacy. Not because ministry is a downer. Not because uh, it's discouraging. Not because you're going to have to deal with difficult people. Because there are no difficult people in our church. Ministry is supposed to make you aware of your inadequacy because it is in your inadequacy that you will turn to the Lord in faith and in prayer and you will find him more than sufficient for whatever he has called you to. Ministry is meant to leave you limping so that you will remember the Savior who came in victory and in love while you were his enemy. And he wrote his name on your granite hard heart. And if he can do that, there's nothing that he cannot do in you for the sake of his people. Dear brothers and congregation, this is what faithful ministry looks like. It is the all-sufficient God working in men whom he has chosen to spread the fragrance of Jesus everywhere. It looks like affection for the church flowing out of hearts that have been made new by his spirit, and that's what we ought to expect because that is what the Lord is capable of among us. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, you who are gracious and kind, you who are all-sufficient for us, thank you for this word. Thank you for the reminder that not only are our elders and our deacons and all of us in your sight, insufficient for what you call us to. But thank you that you make us sufficient and you fill us. You are able to do far more and abundantly than we could ever ask or think. And so we pray, O Lord, of glory and grace, keep us looking to you and trusting in you and resting in your provision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to turn now to our time of installation and ordination and